This is William Kentridge in my studio in a warm autumn afternoon in Johannesburg at 4.30 p.m. These are brief answers for Giuseppe and Ruth from Film Explorer. I'll try to answer some of your questions. First one, according to Andre Breton, Jari's favorite tools were the bicycle, absinthe, and the revolver. Which one would I keep for myself, or which are my favorite tools? Certainly the bicycle, in its dismembered form, is central to me. In Swaziland, where they dye and spin the wool that's used in the tapestries that I make, very often the spinning wheels are made not out of beautiful wood, but out of abandoned bicycle wheels, which are more durable and stable than the wooden wheels. So you often see people with a bicycle wheel on their head walking up and down the hills of Swaziland. So you see people who are both with their means of production, the bicycle, the spinning wheel, but also carrying a Marcel Duchamp on their head. And that set of associations carries through. So what a dismembered bicycle wheel can become, both a useless and useful object, sits centrally. A stick of burnt wood is obviously a central tool for me, and the voice of a singer. So let's say the broken bicycle, the voice of a singer, and burnt wood would be my favorite tools. Question two. My artistic reference leads mainly towards ancient and modern art. What in contemporary art does not inspire me? That's an interesting one. I never think of contemporary art as a specific form. There are kind of elements of modernism which have never yet been resolved, which are still extremely rich which not only me, but many other artists working now, and there's many other contemporary artists are still involved with them by modernity, modern art. I'm referring to the pleasure people take in a fractured world, in the energy that comes from understanding the world as fragmented and working with those fragments to make some other provisional coherence. And that's a kind of element of modernism, which still seems vital to me now, but I don't see why that isn't a part of contemporary art as well. And there are particular works in contemporary art that I admire and I'm very struck by and I'm jealous of often, that I hadn't thought of that. But the references to other art generally has to go backwards rather than sideways. Otherwise it becomes too much of an incestuous conversation between peers. Question three, colonialism and its aftermath. Now, any discourse on colonialism is risk sharing the same delirious globalitis of this narrative. Let me just say that your questions are some of the most interesting ones that are sent to me. Do many, many of these interviews, and usually I groan when I see the questions. And when I saw yours, I thought, oh, what a pleasure. So it would be nice to have a proper conversation at some point. But to get back to the questions. That is all there is. Is this all there is? Would you say that a conscious delirium together with the turning of global discourse to open interrogations are the main tasks of the artist? That's a hard question. Conscious delirium, I think, is. I was asked recently to give three phrases about my own work, and the only thing I could honestly come up with was too much, too many, and not enough. In other words, there is an overabundance. There's so much, too much work being made and too many things to see. But to try to keep up with the muchness of the world, with the thinking in the world, with the paradoxes and contradictions of all the places where good, clean images of coherence break down, where one has to show all the gaps in the single lines of narrative coherence. That does seem to be not a duty, I don't think there's any moral duty of the artist, but one of the opportunities for artists to work on. I'm not sure about the task of the artist. The task of the artist is to work hard in their studio 
And hopefully, if the work is interesting, that will tell you something about the world and about the artist also. The openness of the interrogations I would describe as giving stupidity a safe space to flourish in the studio. You know, it's giving the image the benefit of the doubt, the whim, seeing what emerges rather than even knowing what specific questions to ask, to try to discover what the questions are at the end, and understanding that all answers will be provisional, partial, and completely inflected by the biography of the person giving the answer. Whether this is particularly about the end of colonialism, I think what the aftermath of colonialism shows very much is the importance of the margins, of ideas, politics, and an economy at the margins. Processions, the cinematic, the big mechanism ruling the people, the dance macabre as a mechanism. I never thought of it as a mechanism, but that's a very good term for it, and a carnival parade. Necessity of destiny and hazard of celebration conflate. Is there more necessity or hazard in our walking? I suppose that's a question I should ask you. Is there more necessity or hazard in our walking? And I'm not sure who it was who described walking as constantly falling and saving yourself from falling. With every step, you lose your balance and regain your balance. So there's a hazard in losing your balance and necessity in saving yourself in every step. The walk is, as you say, both pushed from behind, migrations and refugees pushed from behind, but with the activity of taking the step, also a possibility of a different landscape that will be entered. And even more than that, a different landscape that will be constructed by each footstep as it progresses. Slow motion versions of thought. How did I dress myself? Did you address to yourself you've done? the ideal time of reception of my animated works. Four hours in the Basel exhibition is three and a half hours more than most people, so thank you for that. I think the thing about the films, and one of the reasons I've not made a feature-length film, is that even though they're only eight or nine minutes long, you can fit in the drawn form a kind of epic scale into them. And obviously there are many expansions and contractions of time in animation. When projected, take one second to the eye, which may take many hours to draw, to actually gather those frames, which together will constitute one second of projected time. So there's a time coming into the studio, the impulse for the image, and then it's dissolution and breaking up into all the fragments of the different frames, which expand how long that takes, and then it's shrinking back into the roll of film, the 25 frames, which passes in the one-second flash. In a way, I think also when you watch an animated film, you're aware of the time in the film. If you just watch a static photograph for 10 seconds, then you're giving it your 10 seconds, the viewer's 10 seconds. If there is even the most minimal movement in that drawing, a blade of grass moving, a bird flying across the top, 
suddenly the time comes out of the viewer and goes into the film. And the film holds the time, and you are there as an observer, not giving your time, but absorbed in the film's time. So I suppose the way I want a viewer to do it is to give themselves over to the time of the film, the time embodied. You know, the half kilo of celluloid film that's gone through the gate that contains the four and a half minutes of film in it. And I think the fact of the animated drawings does make you aware of time as a much more concrete material substance rather than this otherwise ephemeral and completely invisible material we move through. Question six, the studio, the atelier, the making of fundamental parts of the artworks. How do I decide where a work of yours should start and finish? In terms of finishing, it's much easier with animation because you don't have to reach a definitive finish. The drawing is under construction and in movement, and when the sequence reaches the movement that you want, then whether the drawing is finished or not doesn't really matter. You go on to the next one and it stays in its definitive state of incompletion as opposed to making a drawing that only exists as a drawing, where the hard thing is to keep the flexibility and looseness of drawing it started with all the way through to the end, to be able to finish the drawing at the speed in which it was begun. With animation, that's much more normal because animation is so slow, you have to work at a good speed, otherwise your life dies before you've finished one minute of film. So there's always a panic of work in the activity of doing the animated drawings. Even so, the film still takes six months or a year, but they would take 10 years if you gave each drawing and each moment of it the attention you would as if it was going to be a finished drawing. I rely on the people seeing it badly because they only see it for a 25th of a second at a time. Next question. Question seven. The mouth is dreaming. The level of drawing seems to overcome and becomes autonomous from the meta level of my self-inscription in the drawing, drawing that is not your own. Is humor for me a way to block the regressio ad infinitum of self-reflecting artworks? I think there are always two conversations in any work of art. The one is a relationship to the outside world, and the second is to the history of image making. So there's always a reference back to if you draw a horse in your head, there are all the other horses you've seen in art history and also out in the field. The ways in which they have been represented naturalistically, schematically, in three dimensions, in two dimensions. And there is what the horse is doing, whether it's an aggrandizement of a man, whether it stands in for the working class, all of those other kinds of questions that come in. As well as, of course, the private history of horses in every viewer's head that enables them to recognize a horse and layer that horse with all their own sets of memories and associations. So I think there are many ways that one stops the work simply becoming a regressio ad infinitum into self-reflection. Self-reflection is one out of many elements of looking. The formative way of working, how do I coordinate the individual process of creation, and moments like the editing of the work with people like Janus Fouché. For a lot of the work, Janus would be in my studio working upstairs on the mezzanine and I'm drawing down below. Or I'd be drawing in the evening, he'd come in the morning. And we'd look back at what's been done and then talk about what could be changed or what new material could be added. And as a new sequence is done, he may get there. And then there are times I'd say, I don't know what to do with it. Here is footage, 
Can you add these two pieces together and see what we get? And then it's very much the practicality of looking at that and me being able to say, I know that's what I asked you to do, but I can see they're moving too fast and it's too crowded. Then we slow them down. Can we take some figures out? We need a darker sky. Some of which things I'll do with drawing, or all of which I'll have drawn at some point, but we may find, well, here's a sky from a drawing I did a year ago, which seems the right one to put behind these figures now. So in that sense, the conversation with them is very generative, both of the new drawings to be made and of the making of sense out of separate fragments, which by themselves don't make a sense. In Ubu tells the truth, the eye and the camera principle of destruction. Is the eye more destructive than the hand? It's interesting, I wasn't thinking of it as destructive. I was thinking it about vanity. Because the eye is the recorder of the images and stands in for the camera, obviously. And one of the things about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, of which the Ubu was a record or connected to, was that many of the most damning pieces of evidence of what had been done to people, the photographs, the home movies, were taken by the perpetrators. And that even though they were doing things which they knew to be horrific, there was a kind of vanity of wanting to record themselves in that place that could not be resisted. In that sense, I would say it is the vanity which provokes a kind of self-destruction. And the recording done of the eye or of the camera as a metaphorical eye, I think of it as a way of feeding what's inside rather than itself being a destructive force. So I can't answer that question. That needs a more clever person than me to think of that. Then the other one is an interesting one. I'd never thought of myself as Sisyphus, but fundamentally I suppose the drawing, the redrawing, the rubbing out, the redrawing, the rubbing out, the redrawing is a kind of Sisyphusian process. And you get the rock to the top of the hill and maybe that means that it stays there for a moment while that film is there and seen for that moment. But then it somehow always rolls down the hill because the next week you're busy pushing it up the hill making the next film. It's interesting, when people ask me in the future now, why do I keep working like this? I will just shake my head and say Sisyphus. So thank you for that. And Sisyphus is, of course, always a drama of resistance. Have I ever thought of producing a film especially for the cinema theatre? I have thought about it, and I've written scripts, I think two complete scripts and many treatments, and thank goodness none of those have been made. It would only be possible to make a full-length film if I could use the strategies I use in making the short films. And I suspect the films work because they're 11 minutes long and would not work at 90 minutes. So it would have to be either a collection of short stories, and sometimes films have been shown in a set, but that's not the same as a feature-length film. Feature-length film, you need somehow to get grapple with psychology, with character development, with the jeopardy of a single character, and I'd have to find a way of making films that avoided all of those things for it to be possible. I'm not a novelist. would not be good at being able to do a film, and if it's a conventional film with actors and script and sets, then I think there are many filmmakers far better. So it would have to be a stranger, more essay-like film, and I can't imagine anyone wanting to sit through 90 minutes of that. Thank you for the questions. 